It's a very interesting thing to be othered within your own family. So yes, I have my parents' faces and their DNA, but my physicality, my neurology is unlike anyone else's in my entire family. If I think about it too hard, my head will explode. You know, so I'd much rather, again, use the art as a vehicle towards understanding, towards empathy. This is what art does best. This is what theater does best. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with actor, artistic director, and UNCSA alum, Greg Mozgala. After years of performing on some of Off-Broadway's finest stages, Greg is enjoying a well-earned banner year. He recently completed a national tour playing the title character in Teenage Dick, a modern take on Shakespeare's Richard III centered on the experience of a high school student with cerebral palsy. And this summer, he appeared in Richard III itself, the original, alongside film and theater star Danai Gurira in the public theater's revered Shakespeare in the Park season. This fall, he will cap off the year with his Broadway debut in Martina Mayock's Pulitzer Prize-winning The Cost of Living. Greg will be reprising the leading role he performed in the play's premiere at Manhattan Theatre Club in 2018. Greg can credit at least part of this year's success not only to his acting, but also to his producing skills. In 2012, determined to make disability and people with disabilities more visible on the nation's stages, he founded the Apothete, a New York-based theater company dedicated to the production of works that explore and illuminate the disabled experience. The Apothete has developed several new plays and adaptations from and with both established and up-and-coming artists, disabled and non-disabled, deaf and hearing. And it is through the Apothete's commissioning program that Greg commissioned playwright Mike Liu to write Teenage Dick. Greg spoke to me on his Monday day off of Richard III rehearsals. I asked him to take us back to when he was graduating from UNCSA's high school program. I wanted to know how aware he was of the challenges he would face as an actor with a disability in the professional world. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, I, assume, I was under the assumption that, again, I wouldn't face those challenges. It wasn't in my perception at the time. You know, that my disability and my idiosyncrasies as an actor would be an obstacle because it had never been really up until that point. Because theater was the place where I felt I belonged, where I found community, where I found, you know, that that sense of belonging, where I could express my humanity, all, all those things that made theater great. You know, it was really only until moving towards. I mean, it really went into stark relief when I began auditioning for, you know, schools. Those questions came up about how do we address this, you know, uh, from my from certain instructors, you know, uh, should we bring this up? Should it be an issue? How do how do you have that conversation with the people behind the table? And were these conversations being had with you or behind your back or were you aware of them? No, no, no. Or? We had, we had, uh, yeah, I was involved in the conversations. Thankfully. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So, 
I think it's important to know that my own consciousness about, uh, you know, my identity, you know, as a disabled person, although I was, you know, born with cerebral palsy, I've had it my whole life. The idea that it might be an issue didn't actually occur until my senior year of high school. And it was really a former, I guess, UNCSA grad now, Peter Hedges, right, who wrote uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. You know, he came and did a week-long workshop uh, with our class. He gave us some writing prompt, some writing exercise. I can't remember what it was specifically, but that was the first time I kind of put thoughts and pen to paper down and be like, I'm never going to outgrow this. You know, uh, usually, you know, in late adolescence, you're growing out of bad skin and, you know, all, all those things, you know, that you're riddled with, you know, during during puberty and whatnot. And I was like, who am I with this? What does it mean to uh, start to enter the adult world and the professional world with uh, my cerebral palsy being a disabled person? I had no frame of reference. You know, I had no role models. I had no one really to look up to and, and no markers, right? So, Again, so that's why I felt like, well, I'll just, I'm a, I'm a trained actor. I'm pursuing this professionally. So I'll just do what I always do, right? Which is participate as much as I can t- to the fullest. And even in at NCSA, I never felt like any teacher didn't know how to work with me or wasn't willing to work with me. It wasn't until pursuing my BFA and then getting out of uh, out of that program in, into the professional world, that the obstacles became uh, myriad and numerous. Do you wish someone had had that discussion with you before then? Um, I mean, again, the discussion was it was it was had. I would say, you know, uh, but I think, uh, and there may have been conversations that happened without me. My time at NCSA, I never felt like it wasn't. Uh, like I didn't belong, right? Or I wasn't part of the ensemble or the cohort or that this lifestyle wasn't, you know, a a possibility. And even today, you know, uh, 20 years on, you know, into this business, the one thing that's constantly reinforced is that people have no idea, you know, how to have this conversation. There's no, again, there's still very, very few models. If anything, you know, I've been working to develop those, you know, to to initiate those conversations because uh, no one is talking about it in any real serious, rigorous or considered way, you know, and, and how it impacts the field. Yes. So how, if you could give me the primer, I guess, <laughs> how do you go have, how do you go about having the conversation in such a way that all the aspects facing artists with disabilities are confronted and dealt with head on? Well, I mean, I think the best way to do that is through art, right? And through theater making. You know, I don't spend my days talking about disability. I don't, you know, it's just not, I think most disabled people don't, you know. Our our days are filled with everything else, life and love and work and, you know, hopefully theater, but in family, you know, all, all of these things. In my case, my disability comes up when it comes up, but it's not, and it's kind of always present, but it's not... You know, it is not the totality of who I am. So I feel the best way to get to the issues around it are to actually, I don't have the fluency of vocabulary to discuss it either. I've gained it through experience, right, and, and engagement and having to wear multiple hats. But I've discovered that nobody really wants to talk about disability 
because of a fear and anxiety around it. But people will talk about art. They will talk about a piece of theater. They will talk about a play. They will talk about a script. They will talk about the content, you know, and that's the way that the issues around it can be addressed. Do you know, if it's like, okay, I've got this piece of work, I've got this piece of art, this play, this piece of theater that I want to get produced for the bodies that need to be involved in telling this story and making it happen. Then you can get into the questions of what do you need to to equalize that experience or make that experience accessible. So I'm really interested in kind of, you know, artistic or programmatic access, because I feel like that's where that's what I want to do. You know, at the end of the day, I want to be I want to be engaged in the creative process. Right. And theater making. Ultimately, that's what I want. And only when I started to enter seriously enter into kind of the professional sphere was my disability kind of the major identifier. You know, we're in a field that is very identity focused, particularly, I mean, maybe it always has been, but particularly in the last 10 or 15 years. Again, so how do I, how do I respond to that? My idea is to, well, we're storytellers at the end of the day. So what are my stories? Do you know, what, what, where do I come from? I come from a, it's a very interesting thing to be othered within your own family. So yes, I have my parents' faces and their DNA, but my physicality, my neurology is unlike anyone else's in my entire family. If I think about it too hard, my head will explode. You know, so I'd much rather, again, use the art as a vehicle towards understanding, towards empathy. This is what art does best. This is what theater does best. It's kind of a I guess, you know, Shakespeare called it a mirror, but it's always, it's also a doorway into, into experiences that are different from my own or similar to my own, where I can say, this is who I am. This is what I'm exploring. This is kind of my experience. I'm going to put that on stage and share it with a wider audience. And I, I, what I realized is I, I don't know, I don't know where I come from. (laughs) You know, I don't know what my kind of, cultural lineages as a disabled person. I mean, what I've come to understand is that if, if, or at least hypothesize, if I do have any kind of, if we do have any kind of collective lineage or heritage, it is, it is actually rooted in performance. It is from the freak show. It's from anatomy theater. It's from being on display, you know? And so I can take, I actually think there's great power in that. And something about that has been lost you know, in the second half of the 20th century and 21st century. I feel like I have a direct line to a long, 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 long history of of performance, right? And performers, you know, people who use their bodies, use their difference to elicit a response from an audience. And sometimes make great wealth off it That's, if they weren't, right, if right. they weren't overtly exploited at the same time. Absolutely, right? yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, it gave them a sense of community, it gave them a sense of employment, it gave them all of these things, you know. Yes, there was, there's a huge history of exploitation and all those things, but again, that is part of my history too. So, you know, and theater is a, the arts, you know, the performing arts in particular, you know, in particular, a great way to have those stories told, right, and share with a wider audience, right, and increase the tapestry of human experience, right, and broaden the culture. So speaking, yeah, speaking of your saying about telling telling more stories, including yours, I want to talk about your founding the Apothetae. Am I pronouncing it correctly? I say Apothetae. Apothetae. Mm-hmm. Was it something you always dreamed of doing, or was there an inciting event or a key collaborator? How did it come about? Yeah, I mean, no, I never, again, I never wanted to make a theater 
you know, I, again, I just wanted to be be an actor. But I realized, again, there are no, as I got out of school, as I started to have contact with agents, uh, you know, and that side of the business, I was only seeing four disabled roles with no, with kind of no nuance or, or understanding. Like, you know, I'd be called in for people with Down syndrome or, you know, um, it, just if the roll call for disability, like just, uh, you know, people would do just a blanket call, right? So that was really illuminating early on in terms of, well, if I'm only going to be seen this way, then I need vehicles that will support my casting. You know, I was working with certain disability specific companies, you know, which was great because it was it was an opportunity to work, you know, and for a long time, those are my only opportunities to work. But the sort of problematic issue there was I was suddenly I felt a real separation between, um, you know, it, it was counterintuitive to my experience to date. I actually don't hang out with disabled people very often, you know, and that's been true for most of my life. I was at to leave my sort of local community to go be with other disabled people. And the work that was being presented wasn't reflective of, I just, I, I it's very rare to be in any kind of situation where you would have a, a person who's deaf and a person who's blind, low vision and a person on the autism spectrum and a person with cerebral palsy, like in one place telling a story. So while it was great and I had access, you know, I was able to do Shakespeare and contemporary works and things like that, I felt like I was separated from and being siloed from the larger community and and operating in a place that wasn't, again, it wasn't, I wasn't integrated. And I feel like my experience is an integrated experience. So how do I create works that will be more authentic towards my experience? And how do I work with people that, you know, how do I get to work with writers, directors, designers, right, within the field that are really exciting to me that I'm that I have relationships with. So the company was was really born out of a willingness to tell more stories because I couldn't I couldn't identify any, you know, at the time. And you you asked about an inciting incident. Do you know my sophomore year my my freshman year of undergrad, do you know, I in a modern drama class there was an anthology of plays by an incredibly diverse group of writers, Asian American, African American, LGBTQ plus, and I just realized, huh, there's nobody I don't see any writers who are disabled here. And I I couldn't name any writers at the time, but I didn't there was no representation within within the canon that I was learning about. And I just thought, well that's interesting. And so the, the seed for the company started back in, uh, you know, early undergrad, I'd say freshman or sophomore year. And it wasn't until 10 years, 12 years later that I was like, okay, I can, I feel like something needs to be done. Because again, even, even the company I was, I was working with, they weren't disability led, you know, the artistic directors uh, weren't disabled themselves. And there was still this kind of, um, I know this wasn't intended, but kind of a, a charity based model of, of theater making that I wanted to push against, right? So I wanted to create narratives that I, I thought were more interesting, more nuanced, more considered that were rooted in actual history, whether it be from popular culture or from, from actual history. The Epithete is actually a, a place in ancient Sparta in Greece where it roughly translates to the place of exposure. And it was the place where in ancient Greece, in Sparta, 
disabled and de- deformed infants were were left to the elements if they didn't fit into the very harsh kind of Spartan worldview. And I just loved the idea of of playing on that double entendre of place of exposure. You know, how do we bring these stories to light? How do we shed light into dark places? Particularly exposing, you know, how do we expose our bodies, right? Our neurologies, our, our difference in a way. Because theater, I'm always in relation to an audience wherever I go in my daily life. But theater allows me to put a frame around it and kind of spectacularize that attention. And if I can create a piece of work where I can, for an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it may be, give people permission to look at me and allow that to happen in an artistic context, uh, there's something very cathartic about that for me personally. And I think it actually points back to this. I'm trying to be in conversation with a lineage, you know, that I have identified as having. Among your collaborators in the Apothete and also in your work outside the company are able-bodied theater artists. How do you go about establishing trust in such a collaboration? What are some guidelines you might use to establish open lines of communication between disabled and non-disabled artists? So one thing that I always say to people that I'm working with or people that I'm interested in working with is particularly if they're non-disabled or or even if they're disabled because everybody has different uh, levels of experience, everyone has different entry points to the community. It's say everything you feel you shouldn't say and ask everything you feel you shouldn't ask, particularly to non-disabled collaborators, particularly writers, because I, if I pitch them an idea or give somebody a commission, I don't want them to feel like they can't uh, express themselves fully or follow their impulses to the fullest extent. That can always be course corrected, um, you know, if necessary. And that's, again, that's where the collaboration and the partnership comes in. That's where I feel like that's where I work to build trust of like, you're the artist, I trust you. Let's develop the piece together. If there's anything that needs to be adjusted or changed or doesn't ring true, you know, that's what we're here for. That's what your other collaborators are here for. Working with disabled artists, a deaf and disabled artist, I'm really interested in finding works that where there's kind of seamless integration between the person's disability and, and the character. So I want to ensure people that everything that you are as an individual is right for this particular project. So you don't need, you can bring everything you have to, to the role, to the, to the process, to the part. You don't need to feel like you are less than or don't have uh, anything to offer. You are the absolute right person for this um, as you are. So bring everything you possibly can, which includes any idiosyncrasies or issues related to your your disability. And I think that's just giving somebody the permission to do that, I think, is can go a long way. Uh, I know that's important for me, you know, and that's something that I've had to deal with as an actor myself, realizing that every character I ever play is going to have cerebral palsy. That is the essential part of my humanity. It is a differentiating factor in who I am as a person uh, and as a character. That is who I am as a human being. So don't try and hide it. Don't try and shy away from it. How I move is how I move. How I hold myself is how I hold myself. It's going to affect how I think, how I talk, how I breathe, how I love, how I interact. So uh, I have to be brave and courageous in, in my own work and in my own practice to encourage that. And I would Hopefully, I would want I want to encourage others to bring that as well. 
I like to talk about systemic change in different arts industries. Is there a quick fix or relatively easy fix that would make it easier for theater artists with disabilities to participate fully in the art? Um, I don't. I don't know if there is a quick fix to to greater inclusion. Again, I think the best thing that can be done is again. The answer to me is always like again, make more art. You know, make more art that will allow people to be included, right? And whether that's roles that are specifically for disabled actors or people thinking outside the box and saying, you know, well, why couldn't this person play this role? I just think we need to, we as disabled people, as deaf and disabled talent need to be generative. We need to make the art. We need to demand to be places we're not. We need to make our experiences uh, known and shared with a wider audience. Again, that's what theater does. We need to make our stories visible. Um, We need to make our histories visible. We need to make ourselves visible. Theater, playwriting, storytelling allows that to happen. Um, and I think the more you see it, the easier it will come. But again, think of how long it's taken communities of color, trans, LGBTQIA uh, plus communities to to reach a place where you're seeing more than just one one story represented or one perspective represented. It's taken decades and decades and decades. I feel like we are just at the start of something strides are being made but we still have a long way to go what is ahead is is unknown but it's also it's a very exciting time uh and again i'm excited to be you know if i may say kind of at the forefront of it and to be able to just get on the stage and 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 do my thing at the end of the day that's that's all i want that's what i went to school for that's you know that's uh that this is my vocation um and this is what i want to do Finally, I'd love to hear about your dream artistic project. If resources were not an issue, what would it be? Who would be involved? Where would it take place? Tell me. Oh, man, a dream artistic project. Well, so my roommate at, it was NCSA at the time, his name was Clay McLeod Chapman, an incredible guy. He's a successful writer of books, comic books, films, but he was a huge horror buff. He loved uh, the horror genre, and he introduced me to all kinds of literature, but that world in particular. But one film that he, I mean, we did a screening in my in our dorm room, right? He showed me Todd Browning's Freaks, oh. uh, which is a film in 1933 about a family, uh, a circus, a, a group of sideshow performers, which was produced um, by MGM in the early 30s, pre-code, directed by Todd Browning, who, uh, you know, did Bela Lugosi's Dracula, uh, was a hugely successful director. And the film was a unmitigated flop and disaster when it first came out, but has now become one of the, it's universally recognized as one of, now one of the best horror films ever made. Um, so my dream project would be to make a movie about the making of Todd Browning's Freaks. Wow. Like that's kind of, that's where my mind is now. It's a project I've had in a long time. And again, a project where the seed for which was planted at North Carolina School of the Arts during my senior year of high school. So thank you, Clay. Thank you, NCSA, for that. I mean, I would love to see that kind of story developed 
uh, and brought to the big screen. Because again, it's a it's a movie about making movies, but it's also about it. It's again, it's part of it's a real it's a real story from history. You know where you can, and it's a it's a project uh, that can support the casting of uh, you know multiple people, multiple bodies, and a real slice of kind of you know movie history and I think disability history that I would love to see manifest. So it might take me twenty years, but. I'll get there. But I've been I've been thinking about it, I guess, since I was 17. So if it takes another 17 years, it would be worth it. If you'd like to learn more about Greg and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. And if you know of an inspiring artist changemaker you think we should profile in an episode, or if you yourself are such a person, won't you let me know? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at PC Talenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening. <laughs>